Hello, this is Vinay Nadkarni, head of the Portfolio Specialist Team at ClearBridge, and it is my pleasure to have you on our inaugural in a series of podcasts that will address recent market volatility and opportunities and threats our portfolio managers see in their markets today and how their active management style can take advantage of this volatility. I'm so thrilled to have two of my colleagues, two authentic value managers with a collective 55 years plus of investment experience, Paul Ehrlichman, a portfolio manager on the international value and international small cap strategy, and Sam Peters, portfolio manager on the value equity and all cap value strategies. I hope you've read Paul and Sam's excellent market commentary in January, which collectively hit on the elements of crowding and collective pessimism, creating a great opportunity for value investors. We'll kick off the call with Sam and Paul updating their thoughts with two-plus additional months of market data, and then we'll ask a few areas that you guys uh, uh, that may have differing opinions on. With that, Sam, take it away. Sure. So, you know, the uh, we talk a lot about and think through value cycles. It's almost our map for where we are, and, and we look at valuation spreads, which are typically just we're measuring the cheapest part of the market, whatever they are, and, and it's a cluster of value stocks and where they are uh, priced relative to the market. And not surprisingly, uh, during this time, uh, uh, we think a new value cycle is uh, setting up. Valuation spreads have been widening uh, with some of the backup and, and credit, all the concerns about emerging markets, which I know Paul will get into. And, and the real source here in the U.S. is, is the collapse in energy and commodities. And, and what I, I really want to emphasize for people, and I'm sure Paul will too, is, is value cycles, they're, they're born on panic and volatility. These are not, you know, easy births, if you will. So it's, it's usually, uh, there, there's a lot of things to be scared about. There's, there, you cannot escape risk. And so the question when these value cycles are going on and the value cycles are extending is you're getting paid a lot more for risk. And, and where can you take advantage of that? So, so from a broad standpoint, you know, that collapse in energy and commodities, um, which, which followed, by the way, as always, this massive period of optimism around, you know, brick. Everybody thought we were running out of every commodity known to man, et cetera, and that led to this super cycle and a massive bets, you know, huge capital spending cycle, huge bets on the future, which have now gone bad. That's the messy part. Um, the, the good part of that is that creates a big pile of discarded assets, and a lot of that's junk. You know, you gotta you gotta restructure a lot of that. But there's a lot of value in there because because not only direct commodity stocks, but anything with the tinge of value really gets thrown out when this is happening. And that's that's one of the big opportunities. And uh, thank you, Sam. That's that's great. This uh, one thing that I think I would add to that is um, add in the dramatic underperformance of international as well. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of there's always the ground zero of value investing, and, and as Sam said, <clears throat> it's always about pessimism. The precursor for value investing is never happy, right? It's always pessimism. Macro pessimism is the best thing because it makes everything cheap. And then there's the ground zero, as Sam said, which is the discussed with the last false narrative called the super cycle, the growth forever. Right. So China, emerging markets, the darlings – um, uh, and, and to some degree, big global exporters in Europe, everywhere in the world, are part of, of the ground zero for value investing. So um, overseas, um, assets are generally cheaper. 
um, because they're closer to the source of all the discouragement. It's not U.S. growth that's really discouraging everyone in the world. It's this right. collapse in China. Um, relative to expectations, there's no collapse in China. It's just slowed, uh, as, as economies often do, at tipping points in income growth. Uh, and, of course, Japan continues to struggle. And now secular stagnation and its cousin, deflation, are the thing that are scaring people away from energy, all commodities, um, anything cyclical, and causing um, what the J.P. Morgan quants, I think, called was a macro-momentum mania. Uh, and uh, those uh, that environment is very typical of exactly what you get when value turns. Uh, and, and we do have to consider what's the same. That's the same. <clears throat> but we do also have to consider what's different. Um, and because every cycle takes out some of the bad actors, takes out capital, that's the way, you know, volatility, and as Taleb says, variability makes systems stronger, and so we don't want to be on the destructive side, we want to be on the creative side. Um, so there are new growth drivers, and there is a transition in the world, maybe towards the east, emerging markets, uh, consumers. Um, the super cycle is dead, thankfully, um, so we can't blindly buy commodities and expect everyone to earn a 35% ROE by digging iron ore out of the ground. Um, so we have to understand there could be new leadership in value. Uh, banking we find real challenging. Um, there's, there's some really cheap banks that make a lot of sense, and then there's a lot of regulators that want to take profitability out of the banking sector. Um, so banking may not lead uh, this time. So wrestling with what's different, different, a little different every cycle, um, but at a once in a decade of value versus growth low with value at the lows, um, meaning you spend most of the next decade with the wind at your back instead of in your face, we're really excited about value and the opportunity of value. So, you know, I, Paul, good comments. And, and, you know, one of the things in, in getting into sort of the setup, you know, one of the things that is different is in the heart of commodities in the U.S., which is shale. Yep. And 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 shale, not to be too jargony, but it's short cycle, meaning you can it's it's you can kind of turn it on and off. There's some limits to that, but it's not these the old way we were getting oil, especially during the super cycle, was you know, big offshore projects, you know, huge multi-year, you know, tens of billions, not hundreds of billions of dollars, sort of a commitment that you couldn't just turn on and off. Where shale is much more like manufacturing. And then on the commodity side, you know, right in the energy, it starts as always with supply and demand. And the first rule is, is you know, will demand, uh, is there a demand impulse to pull, you know, eat up some of the supply over time? And there is. You know, natural gas is, is actually growing the demand for natural gas above GDP. Oil, globally, you'd know better than me, but there's still going to be, you know, big demand for, for, for black gold. Yes. Um, so so we'll get there. And then the opposite, now that the super cycle has been, uh, th that narrative, as you said, has been crushed, you know, you're seeing the opposite behavior. Optimism is gone. We're seeing bankruptcies. That's the, you know, exhibit A of, 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 of collapsed expectations. That changes behavior. So capital spending is being reined in tremendously. I think capital spending in the U.S. for energy companies is down 50%. That's what you want to see. Mm -hmm. So the key is, even from a U.S. perspective, we can isolate in on guys that you know, companies that will survive, that have the balance sheets to survive, and then have good rock. They have that good short cycle rock that will be able to produce economically over time, over a cycle, well below the marginal cost. And 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 the beauty is. 
uh, production companies, energy and production companies, they're really bad companies. Um, occasionally during the super sale, they look like great companies. Right. They're earning huge returns. That was yeah. not normal. But you need management to get the joke and, and won't dilute you. But you can buy some of those cheaply. In another area, we found huge opportunities um, is in the merchant power space, where uh, natural gas has been, you know, five years into a, a, really a depression. Uh, coal's in a massive depression. You can't get more depressed than coal right now, but that's uh, impacted the, some of the independent power companies in the U.S. The beauty of those companies is they're not in the index. So for an active manager like me, it's great because they're orphaned. So no one cares. <laughs> no one's playing. They just say these are just commodity companies we don't want. And the result of that is at trough fundamentals, you get a menu, a value menu, with 20 to 40% free cash flow yields. And I, I apologize for the jargon, but just put that in scale. The U.S. market, which Paul is right, is much more expensive than most international markets, is a 4% free cash flow yield right now. So you can get from 5x to 10x the valuation, and they're at trough fundamentals. So as all you know, the commodity and, and energy cycle over time tightens up, their fundamentals are only going to get better, and you've got a very long runway to play with. So what I would say from this example is in the U.S., you know, the overall U.S. market, eh, it does, it's, you know, 16, 17 times earnings. It's not that great. But beneath the surface, there's tremendous opportunities, especially in things that have been orphaned because they're not in the index or they're commodity-related or both is the case of this, this last example. So, so let me ask you guys a question, and I'll, yep. I'll, I'll start with, uh, with Sam on this one. Um, as you said, uh, value investors and, and the value cycle is born kind of in a panic, and both of you guys really have a disciplined process where you say, our process guides us to the scariest parts of the market, right, where nobody right. else wants to go. Um, and so you talked about it with energy, and, uh, and the other part, of you, uh, part about a value manager is being a little early, and you've, you know, reading your letters from 06 and 07 about the excesses of the super cycle, probably a little early, but na so now it's just mm -hmm. engaging timing. So maybe go through a little bit of your discussions with your investment team about energy, about how you're thinking about are you spending more time on the supply dynamics? Are you spending more time on the demand dynamics? Are you spending more time at the company level? Walk through just your thinking about that and thinking about the opportunities and risks within the sector right now. So uh, on my end, you know, natural gas is the most hated. It's more hated than, than oil, but I think it's farther along. And, and a couple things are there that the real – the real new supply that came on, and it was an incredible amount of new supply, was in right in our backyards, was in the you know in, in western Pennsylvania, mostly in the Marcellus and the Utica, and 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 just to scale it for you, overall oil and gas rigs, I think at the peak we're running like 2,000, we're down between four and 500, and within that natural gas rigs have just collapsed, so I think we're running like 30 rigs in the north in in, the, in Pennsylvania and the Utica and the Marcellus. Anyway, I do the math, that's not enough to, to keep the basin stable. So over time, you're going to see production out of those basins decline, and I'm excited about that. And then at the same time, um, energy is the, the, the history of energy is just physical arbitrage. Dan Jurgen, who wrote the prize, Pulitzer Prize winner, well-known guy in energy, the whole point of the prize was just that. Over time, people will find a way to use hydrocarbons as efficiently as possible if you let the markets do its job. So gas is this massive, cheap source of energy, which is ultimately reflationary, but it's going to get used. So demand is growing. So I'm excited there. Oil will also – you're going to set up a time where we're going to, we're going to correct on the supply because capital spending uh, you know, is, is collapsed. It's just going to take time. 
And I think where I'm really contrarian here is I think I, I like the setup for gas. I think that could happen earlier than oil. And the beauty is with the collapse in oil activity is about 30% of, of oil drilling, about 30% of the production ended up being gas, which was a huge issue. So that's coming out too. So, Vinay, to your question, I, I just see the supply and demand dynamics there tightening sooner than later, and then oil will follow from there is my guess. And But both, you know, over this value cycle, both are an opportunity if you pick the survivors. Anything you'd add there, Paul? Well, our, the way we had viewed things was, if you go back and look at our letters, so 2013 we said it was too early and that we were going to stick with quality and growth factors. And, we, and having experienced value cycles, you know, when growth becomes rare, it trades at a higher premium. And, and these companies were still still spending money. They were finishing up their CapEx programs, and there was still hope, and, and there were still uh, – the visionaries were still running the companies. Um, They've all been kicked out. The CapEx budgets have been slashed. Everybody's pragmatic, meaning they're, they're doing what the bankers tell them they should do, the banks uh, say and tell them to do. All their share repurchases have turned to equity offerings to save the company. Um, so in 2015, we kind of said it's less early. And I think Sam's letter echoed this too, that, it, that you know that our timing signals, we both have some timing signals um, that we're saying – uh, it could be early or a, or a period of maximum pain. We honestly don't know, and I think there's nothing wrong with the value managers acknowledging that we'll never get the timing perfectly right. Agreed. And but but it was getting close. It looked felt maximum pain. I think what we're seeing now in the action of the stocks, um, not you know not going to, a lot of companies not going to the through their tw um, January 15th relative lows. Um, estimates having been slashed and now stabilizing. I just read a piece by uh, Quant at Redburn that said uh, earnings estimates are turning up because of the energy and, and material sector doing better than expected, and that's right. the weird way it works because yep. what we're talking about is relative earnings growth improving in these hated sectors. Um, so I think it's time to add and buy, and that's what we're doing now. Um, uh, I would echo um, Sam's comment on gas from an international standpoint that 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 remember that the rest of the world didn't experience the cheap natural gas that the U.S. did. Now that they are with LNG, and now that gas prices are plunging in places like China and places like Japan and in Europe, it is a tremendous boom for lots of industries, for people. It's changing the landscape from a power gen standpoint. So I think we're going to see a bigger than expected demand response globally for gas because you're talking about people who, you know, paid $14 or $10 or $12 or had a hard time getting uh, an uninterruptible supply of gas. North of 20 in Japan. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden it's like world price. And I don't know where that world price is. It's not where it is in the U.S. It's two, three, four. It's been cut in half at least. But these people will and it's about a two trillion transfer so far in energy from producers to consumers. These people are going to do what everyone does when they stick their hand in their pocket and they have a lot of extra money. They're going to start to spend it and they're going to start to create some dynamism on the consumer side uh, and you're going to see um, disposable income rise, rents rising. Home prices are taking off in China even. So you're going to start to see four or five percent inflation. And, and I think that gets to the other myth, which uh, value investors are going to, I think, see exploded, which is deflation. Um, but, but deflation, 
is is not something that you want to build into your portfolio right now. Everyone loves to talk about the millennials. I mean, we're probably sick of talking about them, but everyone wants to serve the millennials. It's a huge group. It's bigger than the baby boomers. They're a little strange um, in that they like to buy things online more than than. And, we're downloading this podcast. Yeah. So so, but but they're the biggest consumer class, and it's dynamic. Well, there's 415 million of them in China, millennials. And guess what? They're educated. They're aspirational. That's bigger than the working populations, the entire working age populations of the U.S., Europe, and Canada combined. Um, so when people get really negative and think energy is – and remember, these are people like 22% of the people have licenses in China. Now, yes, millennials will only have one car or they'll share cars, but it doesn't matter for natural gas. They're going to turn on their computers. They're going to go out to restaurants. The demand for energy is going to be exploding as these spenders come into their own around the world. So it's just the way it is. And so even the transition in agriculture, and we're looking at agricultural commodities as attractive now. I don't think a value manager should ignore um, the, the, the recovering agricultural commodities as well as part of this abundance because there is kind of a – if you spend less on oil, um, people start to spend that on other things they like. Um, some vices like gambling and, and alcohol, which is fine to participate in if our guidelines allow it, but, but also they do spend a lot more on housing, furniture, travel, and they spend a lot more on food and going out. So that's, there's this really great broad value opportunity around the world. So the key, the key signal there is if Paul's right, if we are shifting from deflation, that's the big structural change in markets. And where people get in trouble and where you have huge cycles is where everybody believes something is on one side. That was the super cycle commodities. That was the tech bubble in the 1990s. So the way I keep saying it is that the, the thing that people are sure of is the lack of confidence that there's no growth. And that's when people allocate capital on one side. That's the $6 trillion in negative yielding sovereigns that Paul alluded to. Um, you only get that when there's an incredibly extreme belief state. Right. And when that crumbles, um, there's a huge amount of pent-up demand on one side or pent-up energy that has to be transferred the other way. And and I think that if, yep. if I'm putting words in your mouth, Paul, that, that's what you're excited about. Yep. And, and um, there's just so, so many, in my opinion, if you can do the math, and, and, and a value guy is a contrarian with a calculator, um, if you can do the math, you can see a lot of free options out there. And, and whether it's financials where you're getting a free option on higher rates and reflation, if it's, I mentioned, the power stocks, if it's a you know a, a option on power volatility as demand goes up and we're underinvesting in CapEx, et cetera, et cetera, you can just look at those. And right now, you know, value is hidden in plain sight. So you, you talked about it before. You said mm -hmm. everybody wants to talk about cyclicals and banks, and it seems like so many conversations are about yeah. commodities right now. But ironically, at least in the U.S. markets, the sector that was down the most through the end of February was financials. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I know your portfolios kind of reflect different views. Maybe, Sam, you first. And, and what are the tail th risks or what are the things that you're assessing that, that are the uh, kind of known unknowns? Yeah, so, so what was incredible to us in financials, in, and, and by the way, the, the whole strategy in financials in the U.S., I, I do think it's one of the, the, the remaining deep value opportunities. Now, there's reasons, and, and, and Paul alluded to it. Uh, the regulators have totally changed the return dynamics. 
So there's a lot more capital. I'm not arguing you're going anywhere near the returns they used to be, but you can still buy a lot of financials earning well above their cost capital, even for high beta financials today, even in this environment, and, and do that. But what was incredible to me is the market, Vinay, to your question, they, 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 people, as you well know, they look in the rearview mirror, and I get it, but 2008 scared everybody, so they dust off the 2008 deflationary debt bubble gone bad playbook, and they priced in U.S. financials, especially like a lot of the credit card guys, which are very easy to sort of value and understand the risks that are priced, uh, about a 50% probability of a U.S. consumer recession. That made no sense to us. That the, the, the probability of a U.S. consumer recession isn't zero, but in our opinion, it's not 50, so it was very bettable. So you could just say, look, and these are companies, by the way, that are earning 20%, north of 20% ROEs in the U.S., they were got to single-digit multiples, um, uh, even as you normalize loss curves. So if you normalize loss curves in a consumer session, you were getting paid for that risk. So, you know, that's a huge one. And then on the flip side, if Paul's right and you get, you know, full-blown reflation, and you certainly in the U.S. you keep getting these trends going, you're likely going to have even the opposite response. So you're going to have actually improving fundamentals to some degree outside of normalizing credit, which is already priced in the stocks. So we just see great setups there. And then finally, if you go really deep value, you can still buy some 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 uh, big U.S. financials below tangible book value. That is a distressed multiple. Now, the balance sheets are in great shape in the U.S., tons of capital, tons of liquidity. It's an income statement issue. That's a survivable headwind. And the fact is, to, to Paul's point, if if you get reflation, there's no way these things are going to stay below tangible book, and you know you can ride that back. So it, it really, you know, certainly this cycle in U.S., you know, if you're going to put on the value side, you've got to plan financials. A lot of U.S. financials had priced in a bunch of Fed increases and in higher rates. Now those are out, and we we're selling it into that. So now rates the rate expectations are out of the stocks, and now you're actually embedding the opposite. Now credit losses in that consumer recession I alluded to. So, Vinay, it's more of saying uh, I can be agnostic. So yep. it's totally priced out, and if I stay at these trough fundamentals and I don't get higher rates, this is my point, if I can buy a financial with returns above the cost capital in this environment and nothing gets better, you're going to compound book at a very high rate, and you're buying at a discount to book. So, you, you, you know, you're getting a positive carry on the option. So I almost say I like to buy cheap options on randomness because you don't know what's going to happen, and your timing can't be perfect. But if you do that and they're positive carry options, meaning you're getting dividends and share buybacks and total energy yield while you're waiting, I'm, I'm good to go, and I, don't, I can be somewhat agnostic on timing. Starting with, you know, starting with the discipline, um, amongst the value sectors, the financials continue to give us the worst timing signals, uh, meaning going to new relative lows with estimates getting slashed. And this is outside of the U.S. Um, um, I'm not, I'm not, everything I'm saying is, is I'll address international because Sam already did a great job addressing the U.S. It, it is the same thing. You know, credit cycle, yield curve, and regulation are always the issues. The normal thing is you know, you have a bad, you're going from a bad credit cycle to a better credit cycle, uh, the yield curve steepens, and there's regulatory forbearance, where the regulators realize that putting all the banks under is a bad thing, and they basically, the yield curve steepens, and they let the banks rebuild their balance sheets. We, we don't have that. It's different this time. We, we're not really, we don't have credit problems, because they weren't allowed. 
to right. um, make loans, right? Um, even with the the um, energy sector and emerging market pains, the credit cycles aren't bad. They're nothing like a global financial crisis credit cycle. Yield curve's a problem. You know, we look what NERP did or in Japan. Slammed the banks 25 30% when they went to negative interest rates. It's a tax on money. So all of this hurts the banks. Um, the, you know, the price of money, that's the product they sell. You, you, you distort the price of money, you're going to hurt the banks. Um, so so that doesn't appear that that's ending. So I don't think we're going to get regulatory forbearance. We, a little bit in the U.K. I mean, I mean a little bit in Europe. Um, you're, you're definitely going to get some positive regulatory changes in emerging markets in China. But that's where they have – they don't have a profitability problem. I mean, if you want high returns on assets and ROEs, go to go to horrible places because that's where they earn 3% returns on assets and an unlevered 25% ROE. So we, in emerging markets, ironically, and China, they're pretty high-quality banks. And where you're getting where there's – I think you saw a couple of days ago, they're going to allow the banks – they're forming – investment companies to take the bad loans from the banks, that's regulatory forbearance. I mean, the, the perma bears hate when when there isn't a banking crisis and, and regulators fix the banking system, but that's the history of what they do. Um, and, and so we think the banks are attractive in places where they're doing that, like China, like emerging markets. Uh, and, and the yield curve steepens. The financials are going to explode. And, and I, th I think it's a tipping point issue. I can't predict when that happens. But as a value manager, uh, we're not overweight banks uh, and, and financials because it's, it's, there's a broad uh, opportunity set. Um, and we do have a lot of, let's say, disruptors, leasing companies, online banks, uh, M&A advisory in, in Japan. as that mark. So we have a lot of interesting idiosyncratic plays. But at the end of the day, I think that as part of a – bet against stagnation and deflation, the banks are critically important for a value manager. Um, and no one – right now the, the narrative is, um, you know, negative interest rates and NERP policy forever destroying the, the, the net interest margins of banks. Uh, and, and so I, I love that part of the narrative and, you know, going in and buying – you know, we're buying banks at, at – um, Half a book, tangible book, 40% of tangible book, really good ones, a little below tangible book, and I mean 15 to 25% ROEs. Uh, and then there's the disruptors we love, um, leasing companies because no one leases equipment in China, um, uh, online brokers in South Korea, which are – they just changed the law that you can actually don't have to come into an office. You can do something online, and the stock's just sitting there. No one – I mean, that's – that's a, if you're if you're the leading online broker and they just made it legal for you to actually just be an online broker, it's pretty profound. So there's some pretty cool things like that going on. What do you see on the equity side, biggest risk? What are the things that people should be thinking about that they're not thinking about in an overall equity markets right now? Maybe your perspective, Sam, on the U.S. and Paul, yours on the non-U.S. side. Yeah, you know, in, in, in the U.S., it really is the, the uh, you know, if, if we reflate – and, and, you know, all that narrative starts to crumble and you're going to do it into an illiquid market, it's the crowding risk. And I've, I wrote about this in my last letter, you know, when everybody's on one side and the fact is the market mechanisms have changed, the structure of the market has changed. Um, I think with passives and everything else, 
the amount of pro-cyclical and, and price-driven behavior that reinforces price cycles, it, it goes in both directions. And so everybody's on one side. They're going to try to come out and look for a bid. Um, I think it could be really messy, and I think we've seen we've seen already tremors <laughs> to, to show that. But um, I, I do not want to be uh, Panglossian at all about that because you know that's going to have a big impact on risk taking, in my opinion. Anything on your side, um, Paul? Well, bottom up, it's always earnings, and and you know we continue to see some pretty nasty earnings. You know we're seeing earnings fall. Uh, for two or three quarters in a row, uh, particularly in the U.S., earnings downturns and earnings expectational downturns, which are often a contrarian signal, but but consistent with recessions, and we don't have a global recession. So we do, you know, a little worried about how inflated earnings are by lower interest rates, share repurchases, repression of wages. So I think, you know, for us, we're we're trying to be really careful to make sure that we're not buying into peak profits, because I think... You're seeing the bear market in healthcare. It's just a peak profit thing, um, uh, and and um, uh, so you know, value investors. We're not supposed to focus on growth. Actually, we focus on growth a lot more than people think. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot of pressure in a lot of sectors where there's going to be tremendous earnings appointments for a number of years, um, and we're trying to stay away from that. So there are some foundational risks where the deflation could actually. Turn into um, some nasty debasement, and and some we'll see it in the currency markets. We're starting to see the dollar roll over already, uh, and we can begin to see it in some fiscal deficit spending, and and that has to matter. So someday the bond market will revolt, and that's probably not going to be a happy day for equities or bonds. Um, I, I don't know when that comes. We don't have to worry about that probably yet. Uh, all of the risky, all the risks are in the safe assets. Ironically, you know, uh, I, I saw a presentation yesterday, Sam, to your point about uh, crowding, uh, and uh, it was a statistic of how many uh, greater than three standard deviation days there have been uh, by decade. And in this current decade, it's been 12 per year has been the average. You've never had a decade with more that average more than four. Uh, and actually pre kind of 2000s, it was always one or two per day. And now you just see it much more common as far as those type of yeah. kind of, you know, mm -hmm. as you said, everybody hitting the button at the same time. Yeah, crowding just changes the scale. Yeah. And and uh, so the the institutional imperatives and, and behavior reinforcement, everybody do the same thing at the same time is – Yeah. Is massive, and, and you know, Goldman put out a, a note on factors. Everybody's into factors, the smart beta thing. We just over the last two weeks had had you know, and I laugh when I see this because it tells you your scales wrong because the structures change. But six and seven uh, standard deviation events on factors. Yeah. So we get the same thing. You know, we don't want it's 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 almost zen. We don't want volatility. That creates volatility. Yeah. You know, we we uh, you know you 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 know you don't want active managers. To the spirit of this call, that creates a great opportunity for active managers. Right. So there's always it's not just silver lining. Like I said, it's not being overly optimistic. It's just understanding the structures of things. With that, um, we hope you enjoyed our initial ClearBridge podcast. Uh, please reach out to your appropriate point of contact from either ClearBridge or a parent company like Mason for additional information on this or other ClearBridge sol solutions. And we hope you have a great day and hope to have you download one of our future podcasts very soon. Thank you.